Eden Church family, will you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We will consider the majority, really the vast majority of this chapter this morning together uh, here in just a moment as you find your place and as our children make their way uh, out the back. Let me just first say thank you to the uh, hundreds of you that participated in our 10th annual chili cook-off last night. We, we have outgrown space after space after space, and it all, the gym at the middle school almost didn't even fit the number of people that came last night. Whether you made chili, made dessert, served in some way as a part of our student ministry team, or just came and had fellowship and supported our teenagers, uh, thank you. That, that event really has just become a part of the DNA of who we are as a church. It's so much fun. Thank you to uh, so many that participated in that and made sure uh, that we were able to send our students to uh, Mfuge this summer in Philadelphia. And this is a busy weekend for us because today is the third Sunday of the month, which means we will gather not only this morning, uh, but also this evening for our third Sunday evening service. Um, it's going to be at five o'clock winter hours. So five o'clock, uh, be in here. We're going to receive the Lord's table together, hear testimonies from our ministries. Uh, Jay Broom, one of our faithful laymen is going to be preaching tonight for us from Ephesians chapter two. Uh, so I encourage you to be here for that. And then not only is it the third Sunday, but it's also the second month of the quarter, which means it's members meeting. I told you, it's just a busy weekend for us. And so after the third Sunday service, probably between 6 and 6.15, uh, we will have our first quarter members meeting. We have nine new members that we're going to be, our prospective members we're going to be presenting to you. Uh, we're going to ask you to buy a new church van. I mean, these are kind of the, I know, right? These are the things that we, you can tell the people that have ridden in the vans recently. Um, <laughs> These are the things that we do as members once a quarter when we gather together for our members meeting. So members, uh, it's important for you to gather with us tonight, not only for our uh, third Sunday service at five o'clock, but following that for our members meeting. I'll invite you to stand with me now as we honor the reading of God's word. It's 23 verses, but I want you to read it all today for us. It's all God's word. I want you to hear it. We'll have to saturate our minds and hearts as we turn our attention to what the Lord says to us in his word. The apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter nine, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake 
because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commands that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, for I am writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it in all for the I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you this morning for the goodness of your presence. As we can know that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are with us. That is the local church, this local church gathers and thousands of other faithful local gatherings of believers gather together on this Lord's day. We can trust that your presence is in our midst. Thank you, God, for the gathered body of believers, for our time of prayer and scripture reading and and of worship that is rendered unto you. May it be a pleasing aroma to our God and King. We pray, God, that as we turn our attention to your word, that it would instruct us that as people who live in a time so affixed on personal freedom and the claiming of rights that we would understand that the gospel is worth sacrificing it all for. Penetrate our hearts with your truth by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have spent very much time working at all, which many of us have, you have run across a bad leader. 
you, you've had a boss, you've had a supervisor, you've had, I'll just speak in the context here, a commanding officer who lived by the motto, do as I say, not as I do. These are leaders who are unwilling to set an example for those who follow them. They expect by the nature of their title or office that people will just do what they say. And in many cases, people do because their livelihood is dependent upon it. But the best leaders that we have experienced in our lives, the bosses that we most enjoy working for, the supervisors that we most respect are those who are willing to lead by example, who will roll their sleeves up, who who will get down in the dirt and in the mud and work alongside of those whom they have been given authority over. As, as we come now after break, taking a break last week with, with Pastor Jay preaching in Jonah, we come back now to this middle section of 1 Corinthians where in chapters 8, 9, and 10, the primary subject, I told you this two weeks ago, that we get to chapter 9, it's going to feel like it's not the subject anymore, but it still is, the subject of idolatry. That, that even though idolatry is not mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 9, it is still very much the subject, and and here's why. In chapter 8, Paul addresses idolatry in the midst of the city of Corinth and of the people of God in the church, and whether they can go to temple banquet halls, pagan temple banquet halls, and eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, and how that affected the weaker brothers and sisters of the church who had grown up in that idolatrous system and may, because of their weakness, return to it. And that Paul had called the quote-unquote knowledgeable Christians in Corinth to sacrifice their freedoms, they they had perceived this freedom that those idols weren't real, and Paul affirmed that in chapter 8, that there are no gods in heaven but one, and so eating meat in those places that had been sacrificed to those false idols wasn't really sacrificing to them, but Paul was calling them to, to give up that freedom, to give up that right for the sake of weaker brothers. Now, what he does, really in very Pauline fashion, we see this very often in Paul's letters, that he will address a subject, that he will then illustrate that subject, and then he will return to it and address it again, which he does in chapter 10. Chapter 9 is a practical example of what he has already instructed them. He has already instructed them that they must consider their rights and freedoms in light of the shared gospel mission of the church. That that these, these rights and these personal freedoms that we claim, we must understand them through a gospel lens. And what Paul is going to do in really these 23 verses is he's going to say, I am not telling you to do something that I myself am not also willing to do. He is not the kind of apostle, leader of the church that says, 
Do as I say, not as I do. Paul says, I am going to sacrifice, and this is where we're going to see in this text, he was willing to sacrifice far beyond even what he was asking them to do. He was going to work harder than the expectation that he was laying out for them. And so this serves as a call for us to consider what we claim to be our rights and our freedoms, which is just ingrained in what it means to be an American. We, we believe in personal rights and freedoms far more maybe than any culture that has ever existed on the face of the planet. It, right and freedom is, is what it means in many ways to, to be an American. And here we are as Americans challenged by a text that says maybe we should consider those rights not through the lens of the Constitution of the United States, but of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And would we, would we, for the sake of the weaker brother, or for the sake of gospel proclamation, or for the sake of the ministry and mission of the church, would we be willing to sacrifice some of those things that we hold so dear, that yes, our true rights and freedoms is the gospel? This is the question. Is the gospel worth it? I think Paul would say that it is. I think scripture would instruct us that it is. So we're going to see this really in two parts this morning. The first, the lengthiest section, is where Paul talks about sacrificing personal rights and freedoms for the sake of the mission. But he doesn't just talk about it. He doesn't write to them and say, you need to do this. He uses his own life as an example. Here's how the apostle Paul did this so that he's not calling them and through the scripture calling us, the church of God in this day, to do something that he was not willing to do. So let's see how Paul sacrificed his rights and freedoms for the mission that God had called him to. Look at verses 1 through 3. He asks some rhetorical questions and it begins with this idea of freedom. He says, am I not free? So he's, he's transitioning from eight and nine, where he's called, chapter eight into chapter nine, where he's called the Corinthians, the knowledgeable Corinthians, to sacrifice some rights, some freedoms, and he asks the same question: Am I not free? Then he asks, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And he says this in in verse 3, which gives us a clue to the entire chapter. This is my defense to those who would examine me. He anticipates their objection to what he says in chapter 8 and what he's going to say even more clearly in chapter 10. He knows there are some that are going to say, Paul, are you expecting of us something that you're not willing to live yourself? And he says, I am free. I'm an apostle. You are my workmanship. And all of those questions are going to come back up in this text. And he says, but I want to give a defense in case you would examine me. Just in case you would look at my life and say, are you really practicing what you preach? So Paul's going to examine his life for them in anticipation of their objection. 
And he does so with, with a few examples. The first couple are very brief. He gives, in verses 4 and 5, brief examples of the way that Paul sacrifices both his social and marital rights where he sacrifices his social and marital rights. And these, the reason I think this example is brief, because these are issues that Paul has previously addressed in the book. He writes in verses 4 and 5. Do do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So in verse 4, he says, do we not have the right to eat and drink, even though in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13, Paul says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And then he says, do I not have the right to have a wife? Even though he said in chapter 7 to the unmarried and the widow, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So he's already shown in his life in both chapter 7 and 8 ways that Paul has sacrificed for the, for the mission. And here he asks them this question, does he not have the right to eat and drink? Now, eating and drinking are social activities. And it's the social activity of eating and drinking that was the, that was the question for the church in Corinth because to eat and drink socially was to eat and drink in a place where the food had been sacrificed to idols. It had either been sacrificed, you were eating in the temple where it had been sacrificed or in someone's home where it was likely to have been sacrificed. He says, do we not have the right to eat or drink? Well, certainly they do. Don't all human beings have the right to eat or drink? And yet Paul says, I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice what I eat and what I drink for the sake of the mission. He also talks about his marital rights. So I'm not the right to take along a believing wife. He talks about that, that the other apostles and the brothers of, of Christ and Cephas, he, he singles out Peter and he says, aren't they all married? Aren't the apostles that are, that are kind of running the church in Jerusalem, who he, who he has a good relationship with and is actually at the end of this letter going to raise funds for, aren't, aren't all those brothers married? Even the brothers of Jesus have, have, taken, along, have taken believing wives, one of the brothers of Jesus, who we know as, as James, was, was kind of the head of the Jerusalem church. Says, that guy's married. Peter's married. Could, couldn't we be married? But Paul had viewed it, that marriage would hinder his mission. We considered that in chapter 7. So these are just brief examples of how he has already shown them his willingness to sacrifice for the mission. But then he gives them a lengthy example where he talks about his sacrifice of his financial rights. And what Paul's going to do in these next several verses is, is he's going to lay out the biblical argument and a very clear biblical argument that the normative practice, and, and this is the extent that Paul goes to, not just within the church, but that the normative practice within religion, whether it's Christian, Jewish, or even pagan religion that was so dominant in Corinth, that the normative practice is that pastors or priests or whoever it is that is kind of considered the clergy of that religion would be paid by the temple or by the church. And so he's going to lay out this this normal practice 
He's going to do it in five ways. And so I want us to see, I've divided this up so we can see these five arguments that the Apostle Paul makes. The first is in verses 6 and 7. He says, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living, who serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? The first uh, argument that Paul makes is it's just the ordinary practice, the natural practice of man is to enjoy the fruits of one's labors. He says soldiers don't soldier for free. And we have a lot of soldiers in this room today. Let me ask you, if the government stopped paying you to do it, how, how long would it take for you to stop reporting to that ship? Probably not all that long, I imagine. Because soldiers don't soldier for free. He says the one who plants a vineyard eats the fruit of it. Vineyard farmers don't pay for grapes, Paul says. And the one who tends to flock gets get some of the milk. He says dairy farmers don't pay for milk. This, this is just an a, a ordinary practice, the natural practice of mankind. You look out and you say, you know, a vineyard... A guy that owns a vineyard is not going to another guy's vineyard and buying grapes. A guy that owns dairy cows are not going to another guy to, to be, he's not going down to Walmart to buy milk. He's got milk in his backyard. This is just the ordinary practice. And so this is the first, the first argument that Paul makes for compensating people like pastors and missionaries and church planters in his day, apostles. This is just the ordinary practice. The second is in verses 8 through 10. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? So he says it's not just the ordinary practice, but there's scriptural precedent. And he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, where he says, For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is for oxen that is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. So the Apostle Paul looks back into Deuteronomy 25. He looks back into the Old Testament law, and he says God has established a practice even then that those who were in service of the temple in Jerusalem would, would reap financial benefit from it, that they would be compensated from it. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul's going to use the same argument in instructing Timothy of how to order the church. And he says there that there are some elders of the church who are going to be considered worthy of double honor. In 1 Timothy 5, 17, he talks about these double-honored elders, that these are those, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And he says in verse 18, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So Paul later uses Deuteronomy 25 in the same way that he uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. To say it, it's a scriptural argument. To say that, again, apostles, pastors, missionaries should, should be paid. Now, for those of you that are like, this guy's just up there arguing right now for his own paycheck. Believe me, I feel that. It's genuinely not what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm trying to show you what the text says. His third argument in verses 11 and 12. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we 
not even more. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. His third argument is just one from common sense, that everyone is compensated for their time and effort. It's just the way the world works, Paul says. He later makes a similar argument in Galatians chapter 6, writing to that church. He says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. This was the way the world worked in, first, in, in, in Corinth in the Roman Empire. And not just people, you know, going out in the fields and day laborers. But as I've talked to you about in, in the culture of Corinth, there was a a robust system of traveling speakers and, and, and philosophers and, and even, yes, religious preachers. And, and they all seem to have some type of provision, some type of benefactor. And those who benefited from their teaching and ministry gave to them. It was just common sense that they would be compensated for their time. Now look at verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Paul's fourth argument is he he appeals to religious custom. He says in both Jewish and pagan temple practices, here Paul doesn't make a distinction. He doesn't. He doesn't say whether his, his mind's on Jerusalem or his mind's on the temple of Apollos that was right there in Corinth or any of the others. He's just... applying basic religious custom that those who are in service of the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings in both Jewish and pagan temple practices just as it is today. Find any religion today and what you'll find is that the leaders of those religions are supported financially by the sacrifice of of the people. It's just what we see and what we have always seen going back even to ancient times. Number five is in verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. I find this incredibly interesting because what Paul is doing here is he is appealing to something that Jesus had done during his ministry. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 72 disciples, two by two, into the villages of Israel. He sends them out as missionaries and gives them very specific instructions. It's actually from Luke chapter 10 that we uh, get our words, pray, send, and go, to to think about our uh, mission efforts away from our own city. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus instructs those disciples in this way. He says, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. So Jesus, with the 72, establishes a practice that the laborer deserves his wages. You say, well, how do we know that 1 Corinthians 9, 14, when Paul says the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel, is thinking of Luke 10, 7. Well, it's one of the reasons I've gone to 1 Timothy 5 and Galatians 6 to show you that Paul makes this same argument other places because in 1 Timothy 5, in the same place where he quotes Deuteronomy 25, the same place where he he quotes the Old Testament argument for paying those in religious employment, 
He also quotes Jesus at the end of verse 18. He says, and the laborer deserves his wages. This is the New Testament quoting the New Testament. That's that's fascinating, by the way. That the New Testament is quoting the New Testament alongside the Old Testament because it is all God's word. And so Paul's final appeal is to the instruction of Christ. The laborer deserves his wage. Now, occasionally, I'll interact with someone who, who doesn't believe people like pastors, missionaries, church planters, what have you, should be paid for their religious efforts. Some, so much so, view it as an offensive idea that people would be paid to proclaim the gospel. However, this is not Paul's point of this lengthy example. On the contrary, he is pointing out clearly that they should be paid, that we should at least consider compensating them for their time. And yet he, while deserving of that right, is free to refuse it. You see, this isn't a sermon about compensating pastors and missionaries and church planters. It's a sermon about Paul setting an example in the sacrifice of rights and freedoms. So he makes that lengthy argument about why we should pay people like him. And then he says this in verses 15 through 18. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this on my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So after making this lengthy five-point argument for why apostles, pastors, missionaries, church planters should be paid, Paul says, but not me. Again, he's willing to go above and beyond even that which he is expecting others to do and even that which he is instructing that churches do. Paul instructs churches to pay their pastors and then in the next breath he says, but not me. Don't pay me. I'm going to refuse these rights for the sake of the mission. I'm going to use this as an opportunity to instruct you that, yes, the normative practice of the church should be that we compensate people like pastors or or when we bring in a church planter to plan a new work, that the churches would come together and pay them. Or when we send a missionary overseas, that we would, we would cover their expenses and we would make sure they have the things that they need. But, but Paul says, I, I, while that's the normative practice of the church, it's not what I'm going to do because I'm going to set this above and beyond example for you. That even though I have the right and the freedom to to demand this, it's the teaching of Scripture. Paul says, I'm not going to. I'm going to set this example for you, and I'm just going to keep on preaching the word of God and working at the same time. Number two, we must view for personal rights and freedoms through a gospel lens. So if those are the examples... Now what we're going to get into in verses 19 through 23 is, is his, his, again, he's still looking at himself. 
but he's going to make this call then for us to, to examine the way that we view rights and the way that we view freedom through the lens of the gospel. That the gospel must change everything for us and the gospel changes how we think about our rights and freedoms in relation to others. Let's read this entire section. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I may win more of them. Then we get to some of the more famous words of the Apostle Paul. He says, to the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessing. Paul establishes four examples of people who, although he was free from all, that he considered himself a servant or a slave to. At the beginning of verse, uh, verse 20, he talks about those who are Jewish by birth. The end of verse 20, he talks about those who are Jewish by choice. He says, to the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Then he says, to those under the law, I became as one under the law that I might win those under the law. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, some, some Jewish people were born into being Jewish and they carried on in that faith. Others uh, converted. Others were, uh, were of uh, other national descents and other ethnic descents, and they converted to Judaism. So he addresses both of those groups. To the Jew, I became a Jew. To the one that's under the law, I became as one under the law. Verse 21, he talks about the Gentiles. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. And in verse 22, he returns to that group of people that he already addressed in chapter 8, the weak. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. Now, it's important that he leaves them last because this is ultimately the argument that he's making to the knowledgeable Christians in Corinth, that they need to sacrifice their rights and freedoms for the weaker brother amongst them. Well, let's first consider the Jewish category, both the Jew by birth in, verse, in the beginning of verse 20 and the Jewish person by choice at the end of verse 20. Paul understood what it meant to be Jewish because he was. He also understood what it meant to be under the law because he grew up under the law and he knew that the law was unable to save. Think about what Paul says of himself in Philippians chapter three. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh he says this about himself, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Here's what Paul understood. He understood that the law couldn't save. 
He understood that if there was anyone who could have confidence in the flesh, it would be him. And he lists his pedigree. And he says that none of that, none of that could save me. So he is not saying in verse 22 that when he was around Jewish people he or, or those under the law that he affirmed that somehow the law had the ability to save them. It's not what he's doing. What he is saying is that he would adopt Jewish customs and practices like observance of the Sabbath day, like dietary restrictions, and that adopting these restrictions and these practices weren't wrong in and of themselves because he didn't believe that they saved anyone. So when the Apostle Paul found himself ministering in a Jewish community, he would observe those things that Christ had set him free from in order to preach the gospel in that context. So here's what we can surmise from this text, that when Paul would go into a Jewish community who would observe the Sabbath from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, something that Christ is the Sabbath for us and sets us free from observing, Paul would observe the Sabbath. Why? Not because he believed that observing the Sabbath would save, but in order to not offend those who did so that he would have a place to proclaim the gospel among them. Same with dietary restrictions. You can imagine that when Paul's in those communities, he, he would eat the things that Jewish people ate, the restrictions that they felt they were under, not because they saved, but so he could gain an audience with those who did believe those things. Then he moves on to the Gentile, this, this Hebrew of Hebrews that Paul calls himself in Philippians chapter 3, adopted Gentile customs. I imagine this was much harder for him than, a, than practicing some of the more Hebrew customs when he was in those communities. Think about it. Think about how this guy was raised. He was a Pharisee, well into adulthood. This was the life that he knew, and now as a missionary to the Gentiles, the Apostle Paul adapts Gentile customs. We don't know exactly what Gentile customs that he adapted, but he does them. And this is why. Because he considered himself a slave to Christ, that, that, that he, was, he was under the law of Christ, and, and that he was being obedient to Christ. And this is what he had called the church at Corinth too in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant, as a freedman of the Lord, likewise he who was free was called as a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become a bondservant of men. Paul saw himself as a slave to all, and he was willing to sacrifice even that which he had grown up with, even those customs that he understood for the sake of the gospel being proclaimed amongst Gentiles. And then this fourth category is the weak. When we think about the weak, we have to think about those who were weak in chapter 8. And that Paul has set an example here in chapter 9 of how he was willing to sacrifice freedoms for the weaker brother. Why? Well, he tells us in verses 22 and 23. He says, because I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. If we fast forward to the end of this kind of mini section in 1 Corinthians, at the end of chapter 10, his conclusion is very similar to verse 23. 
He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. This is... This is the conclusion that we must reach when we look at the example that the Apostle Paul sets for the church. The sacrifice of of personal rights and freedoms when he would move from one community to the other. Why did he do it? He did it so that some would come to faith in Jesus. He didn't want to alienate one group while placating another that he had the wisdom to look and to see the people that he was ministering to and without adopting sinful practices. And I think that's important. These verses sometimes are used as a justification of sin. Without adopting sinful practices, Paul says, I become all things to all men so that by all means some might come to know the Lord. So what? A question for us today, church, are there any personal rights or freedoms that I enjoy that I would not consider worthy of sacrifice for the sake of our gospel mission? Let this sit on you for just a moment. Those of us who have have grown up in this culture that demands rights, that prizes our freedoms, let this question sit on us. Are there any of those rights or freedoms that I do enjoy, that I would not consider worthy of sacrifice for the sake of our gospel mission? Are there ways that I would say, you know what, I'm going to cling to this right, I'm going to cling to this freedom, and if it means that someone else dies apart from Christ and spends eternity in hell, then so be it. As long as I hold to my rights and my freedoms, that is no way for a Christian to live. That's that's not the way that our minds should be rewired by the gospel. When we think about what Christ has done for us, it demands that we then think about how the gospel can do the same for others. What in our lives isn't worth sacrificing for the gospel? In Philippians, back in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says he looks back on all of those things that he counted as valuable at one point, and he says, I now count them all as loss. Here's my question to you, 21st century Christian. Are there, are there things that we prize in our lives separate from the gospel that we wouldn't be willing to sacrifice for the gospel? Are there rights and freedoms that we so desperately cling to that we would prefer people not know of Jesus and his goodness and his grace and his death and his resurrection. What, is, what in our lives isn't worth sacrificing for the gospel? We think about freedoms. We go to Galatians chapter 5 where Paul says, For we were called to freedom, brother. And let me affirm this. If you are in Christ today, my friend, you are free. There is good news in Jesus. You are not bound by the law. 
The law couldn't save you anyway. You weren't bound by it. You were free. Enjoy that for a moment. This great freedom that we, the people of God, find in Christ Jesus, who was perfect in our place so that we wouldn't have to be perfect. What great freedom we find in the gospel of Jesus. You were called to freedom, brothers, but he doesn't stop there. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Uh Uh-oh. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's put Galatians 5 in the context of 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. There were Christians in Corinth who knew they were free to go and eat in a place that we can't really comprehend, but nonetheless, go and eat in a place that would cause other brothers and sisters to stumble and to fall and maybe even reject the gospel and return to idolatry. And he says, you're free. We apply Galatians 5 back into the situation. You are free, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but love your neighbor. Don't bite and devour your weaker brother. Watch out that you're not consumed by one another. You see, the sacrifice of our rights and freedoms don't just exist in gospel proclamation. They exist in gospel community. That not only are we called to become all things to all men so that by all means some might come to know the Lord, we are also called to live in this diverse, multi-generational congregation where people view things differently and think about certain places differently and consume things differently and watch things differently. Just think about the things that I'm saying. Okay, we're gonna get further into them when we get to chapter 10. But we live in this gospel community with the one thing that brings us together is the gospel of Jesus. For some people in this room, the only thing you have in common with with another person in this room is the gospel of Jesus. You were raised different, you live different, you do your finances different, you think different, you look different, all of those things. But you come to this place every Lord's Day and sit by these other people every Lord's Day and the one thing you have in common is Jesus. Oh, how good is that? And isn't it worth sacrificing our freedoms for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ as we show them that we love them, not seeking to devour them with our freedom, but to serve them because we have become servants of all church family. Consider your freedoms in light of the gospel and recognize that the gospel of Jesus is worth sacrificing everything for. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful to you for the sacrifice of Jesus, our greatest example. While the Apostle Paul serves as a good example, Jesus serves as the greatest example. Who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took on human form, coming in the flesh, living a perfect life, dying a sinner's death so that we might have life in him. And with that sacrifice in mind, we pray, God, that you would make us people who sacrifice. Make us people who 
don't cling so tightly to those things that we say are our rights and things that we say are our freedoms, but we cling most tightly to the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that alone that can save. And that we are willing, God, to consider the the viewpoints and the needs and the positions of others, not taking in their sin, but proclaiming the gospel to them in a way that shows we love them and that we would consider the needs of our gospel community taking weaker brothers and sisters into account as we exercise our freedoms in Christ. Thank you, God, for how your word challenges us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. While this is a sermon to Christians about rights and freedoms, it's clear that what has set us free and what we are willing to sacrifice freedom for is the gospel. And maybe you've never believed the gospel before. Maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus. You've believed that some version of the law has saved you. It is not, my friend. But Christ died on a cross, resurrected by the power of God, and through faith in that truth alone can save you. If you believe that today for the first time, at the end of our service, we'll have pastors out in the lobby at our connect desk. Just come out there, turn left, look for me. We'd love to talk with you about how you can trust in Jesus and follow him with your life. Church family, let's stand together as we worship our King.